invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14, 12 to 16. As we look at the preparation for the Passover, Mark 14, 12 to 16. In 1906, a German named Albert Schweitzer became famous in the fields of theology and philosophy when he published his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in this book, Schweitzer gave voice to the already rising opinion, uh, which many had, that Jesus Christ was not the immortal, eternal Son of of God made incarnate, but rather he was just a, a visionary. He was, uh, he was a man who tried to revolutionize the world uh, and, and had high hopes and high aims, but unfortunately he became a helpless victim when matters apparently escaped his control. Schweitzer says in his book, there is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand, and soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, he lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which will bring all ordinary history to a close. But the wheel refuses to turn. And so he throws himself upon it, and then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological fulfillment of his visions, he has rather, and unfortunately and ironically, destroyed them. And yet the wheel rolls onward in the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who thought he was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging on it still. Schweitzer's view still resonates with many today who really are forced to admit that Jesus did exist. There's just simply too much uh, evidence for that, but adamantly reject the Bible's claim of his deity. And Kent Hughes, a pastor, uh, paraphrases uh, this, this viewpoint when he says, he, he puts their view in his words. He says, Jesus was not a man, according to these people. Or Jesus was not God according to this people. He was a man who simply overplayed his hand and as a, as a result was mangled like a rag doll in the merciless gears of history where he flops helplessly still. Now let me ask you, who do you think Jesus was? You've, you've been here. You've listened to the gospel. Who do you think Jesus was. Was he, well, don't steal my thunder. It's a rhetorical question. No, I'm good. I'm good, you answer. Was he just a man who, like I said, aimed for the stars, but unfortunately got wedged in the grinding cogs of history with, with all of his last, best laid plans, with his good intentions, with his with his revolutionary vision lying in the dust? Or was he the all-powerful God-man 
who supernaturally knew precisely what he was walking into and knew precisely what was going to happen and nevertheless still marched boldly to his death because there was a sovereign plan of redemption which had been planned since before the foundation of the world. Now, Sim did us all a favor, and he answered that rhetorical question for us. And so now I don't need to preach this text. <laughs> well, let's, let's go this, through this anyway. This text, like many others that we have looked at and, and many others that you will find in the Bible if you want to look for them, will help you answer that question. And it is an important question, isn't it? Who was Jesus? So let's read the text, Mark, 12, Mark 14, 12 to 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Oh, foolish me, I didn't didn't give you the outline, did I? Okay, the concern of the disciples in verse 12, the command to the disciples, verse 13 to 15, and the compliance of the disciples. And we just read the text. Can you see that outline clearly? So let's look, at, let's look at the first point. The concern of the disciples, verse 12. Right off the bat, we're no sooner out of the park than Mark tells us that the day of the Passover has arrived. And you may say, well, he doesn't actually say the Passover. He says it's the first day of unleavened bread, but as we've looked at before, the Passover proper, as well as the subsequent seven days of unleavened bread, was really considered one and the same. And if you look, Mark tells you precisely which day he means. It's the day when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. And it was the day in which lambs were being sacrificed and slaughtered and butchered all day long because... So many people were there for the festival. Now, today we can buy large quantities of meat. We can buy large amounts of perishable food, and we can take them home, thanks to places like Costco, the storehouse of heaven. We can take them home and stick them in the fridge or the freezer, and you can take them out whenever you need them. Tomorrow, The next day, next week, next month, next year. Or if you're bold enough, next decade. Traditionally, people didn't slaughter and butcher meat until the day you were going to eat it. But uh, thanks to refrigeration, the miracle of refrigeration, we can do that now. The conversation here and in subsequent messages, uh, as the evening goes uh, progresses, we will see clearly that Jesus views, in fact, all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all clearly say this meal that is about to take place is the Passover meal. And there's a contradiction 
that um, if we have time, we'll get into. But I, uh, I have until the completion of the uh, Last Supper um, in the upper room to address that. So I don't know if I'm going to do it today. I may do it later. Now, I said this is the concern of the disciples. Why are they concerned? Well, it is between morning and midday of the biggest and the most important feast and holiday of the Jewish calendar. And the kickoff to that meal is anywhere, because we don't know precisely what time it is, it's somewhere between six to eight hours away. And so it's no wonder that the disciples are concerned because nobody knows where the meal is going to be held. Mosaic law said the Passover had to be celebrated on this day, which is the 14th of the month of Nisan, or Nisan, uh, and it had to be celebrated inside the city of Jerusalem. So it needs to happen here. It needs to happen today. It is, it is a few hours away, and they still don't have a place procured. Wouldn't you worry if, if you were a, a part of that party? Every... Uh, All of Jerusalem is filled to the brim with Jews from Judea and Galilee and even beyond Israel's borders. Every spare room, every dwelling place, every single nook and cranny has already been reserved by every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry who has arrived earlier in the week. And whatever, if they can even find anything at this late hour, it is only going to be able to be fetched at an absolute premium. Now, could you imagine it being Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Day? I think those are still the biggest holidays, right? It is Thanksgiving or Christmas Day. It's, let's say, 10 o'clock, and nothing has been said about who's making dinner, where dinner is going to be, or what is going to be had for dinner. Now, maybe some of you are going, what's the problem? The the more sensible of of the spouses are probably feeling the anxiety right now, right? Up until now, Jesus has not said anything about where they're going to observe the Passover. And so the disciples are rightly concerned. And so their, their concern prompts them to inquire of Jesus. And they, they ask him what Mark provides for us. And at the conclusion of verse 12, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now this This tells us the disciples had learned a very important lesson. They had come to understand Jesus always knew what to do. That's an important lesson for us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, it sounds basic, but how many of us, how many believers go on and live their lives as if they don't believe that? There are many, there are many Christians who, who live their lives like practical atheists. Jesus always has the solution to the problem at hand. He is never caught off guard. He is never clueless as to what to do or unaware of what needs to be done or how it should be done. And he doesn't need to phone a friend. He doesn't need to write into Dear Abby, and I know I've just dated myself, but he doesn't need to ask Jeeves, I don't, wait, I don't think they have that. Near. Stephen, do they still have Ask Jeeves? Okay, okay, the, I'll put it in, in the way that the kids can get it. Jesus never has to ask Siri. Jesus never has to ask Google. And Jesus never has to ask, um, 
Alexa. Did I, did I miss any? Okay, he doesn't have to ask Cortana either. So it's it's important that we adopt this attitude for ourselves. This is this is such an important attitude for all disciples to do. And I I praise the Lord that these men who typically have shown themselves very dull on in some capacity they're getting it. They are they are growing. And it's important for us to, to do this as well and to ask, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And Lord, how do you want me to do it? How contrary that is. How, how opposite of what we are prone to do, how, which is to go trailblazing and to live our lives the way we want to live and, and only after we have made our choices, after we have done what we wanted to do, then do we go to the Lord for his approval or more than we'd like to admit, we go to him to try to help clean up our mess, right? This text is telling us, and the example of these disciples are telling us that we need to stop looking to ourselves for direction, for purpose, for guidance in life. This text tells us that we should stop relying on our own strength, on our own wisdom, and stop going to the Lord in prayer and petition only after our plans start falling apart at the seams and our castles of sands start breaking apart in the tide of life. How do you think, how would you feel if someone was in a relationship with you or was your friend only because of what you could do for them? How would you like it if somebody only associated with you because you could fix their problems? You're, mix, you're Mr. Fix-It. Do you know, do you, could you see how condescending that feels? How do you think God feels when people just treat him like the cosmic genie in the sky? Now, the intent here is not to give you all a guilt trip, but it's rather to encourage you. That nothing catches the Lord unexpected. And when your life does get turned upside down, which it often our lives are wont to do, when you get the pink slip, when you get the, misdiag- the poor diagnosis, when something happens to you or to your spouse or your child or, or, your, or mom and dad, the kind of things that blindside you on an idle Tuesday, the things that you just simply don't and can't plan for, the things that you don't have foresight for. He already knows what he intends to do with it. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it encouraging to know beyond a doubt that God has purpose and design even in the evil and the hard things that he allows to happen in your life? I mean, the only alternative to that is to have is to is to uh, suggest that there is senseless evil, senseless, purposeless hardship. Now, our God is better than that. When these things happen, He already knows. He doesn't need to go to a, His His war room. He doesn't need to seek counsel. He already knows what He's going to do with all of your circumstances, whether they are joyous or hard. And so, I would implore you. To adopt the attitude where you 
the pattern where you seek his counsel and ask him, I mean, go ahead, ask him why this has happened. But more importantly, ask him what he wants you to do with this circumstance, good or poor. Where, where would you have me go to school? Where would you have me find a job? Who would you have me marry? Should I have children? And you might be surprised what the biblical response to that would be. Where should we live? Should I commit myself to this church or should I commit myself to that church? Should I get involved in this ministry or should I go over, go over there and serve in that ministry? Should I take up this activity or do I really need to step back and evaluate, reevaluate my priorities because my time and energy as it stands is already stretched pretty thin? What would you have me do with what has been put on my plate? Here's the, tr- here's the truth, pure and simple. Your concerns, your circumstances, all matters of your life will not sometimes, will not usually, it will always be met with the exhaustive comprehension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He always knows what to do with, with it. Always. And you may ask, well, how do I know what the Lord is telling me to do? And that's a study in and of itself. But let me give you three brief answers. One, where do you, th- where do you think the first place is that you should go? Scripture, good. Scripture. And I say that because Scripture will either prescribe what you should do or it will prohibit what you shouldn't do. About 99% of your questions will be resolved with that. A second, uh, a second option is to go seek godly counsel from experienced and mature believers. If you're a young person, the ideal people would be uh, uh, the, 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 big, the big guy or the big lady right next to you, mom or dad. If you're, a young, if you're a, an adult, go seek a more experienced, more mature man or woman. Somebody who's been through the ringer before. A third option is to listen to your conscience. Well, thank you, Jiminy Cricket. No, Romans 3 does say that the conscience is a faculty that God has put in us. And to some degree, it is a law unto itself that he has given us. So seek, seek what scripture says. Seek what godly counsel says. And then, I'm not going to say follow your heart, but... Follow your, listen to your conscience. The disciples' concern led them to inquire of the Lord, which was good, because as I said earlier, it means they're growing some. They're not just standing there like a cow stares at an oncoming train. They, they have actually brought their concern to Jesus. And the result is now that he gives them instruction what to do. We see that in verses 13 to 15, the command to the disciples. Now, who thinks his instruction at first seems a little odd? Anybody? Bueller? I oh, know. Show of hands. Who th- who who thinks this is who thinks this is awkward? Who who would who wouldn't be tempted to think why 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 go through all these elaborate? I mean, this seems like clandestine. This seems like 
like get, get on a bus, get on a car, walk down, get, get on a get on a subway, get on a submarine. Get, it just seems odd. Well, there's a reason for that. And the and despite these instructions being odd, the the truth of the matter is is that these men are simply going to have to trust and obey the Lord's word. They they will be simply they'll be required to simply trust and obey. There's no better way. So verse 13 tells us he he being Jesus, he sent two of his disciples. Now Luke does us a solid. He tells us who these two are. It's Peter and John. And so these wouldn't these, for these two men, this isn't the first time that they've been given some odd instructions. If you remember, these are the two men whom Jesus uh, sent into the city um, when he arrived in Bethany and Bethphage at the beginning of the week, and, and they found remember, who, who remembers what they found? Colt, remember, same men. And he, so he says to Peter and John, he says, "Go into the city." And he says that because they're not they're outside the city right now. They are they are in Bethany. It's about two miles away. And so these men are to leave Bethany to go into Jerusalem. And there, no doubt, Peter and John would find a great many people. There will be many people working. There will be a great many more people gathering and assembling and collecting all the various things needed for the evening's Passover celebration. There will be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. There will be people uh, manning the vendor booths. There will be people in the flea market. There will be people in the streets. There will be children playing in the streets. There will be thousands and thousands of people lining the, the various booths going to the temple where they will get their Passover lambs. These lines would make the Black Friday line Black Friday lines seem like absolute child's play. And so, and here's the point. With, with all the locals and the pilgrims completely canvassing the scene, the picture would be utter chaos and sheer pandemonium. Who's an introvert in here? Okay, you would go nuts in this scene. Do you remember the, do you remember the, the Where's Waldo books? Yeah, it's fun to look at, to look for Waldo, but how would you feel actually being in that scene? Some of you, some of you introverts are just mentally curling into the fetal position right now. Well, they're not looking for uh, a striped red and white shirt this time. They're looking for a man with a particular object in his hands. What object is that? The pitcher of water. He will be, uh, Jesus says, that he will meet you. So either he will, uh, and we don't know if this man is privy to this to this operation, if he's going to be actively looking for them or if by coincidence he's going to run into them. But he, he is going to meet them. He's going to uh, uh, come into their path one way or the, the other, and they will know, they will be able to identify him by the pitcher of water that he has. Now, that may not strike you as odd or out of the ordinary, but uh, commentaries and scholars tell us that men in the, in the ancient world didn't carry pitchers of water. In agricultural societies, and this makes sense, men traditionally spent most of their day and their effort and their energy in their trade or uh, whether it was uh, uh, 
uh, out in the field. Uh, many people were farmers, and the women would stay at home, and they would go and gather the water. That was, uh, and I don't say this in a sexist way, but that was re- that was reserved as women's work. And you know, I would encourage you not to think that this is sexist, because what would you rather do? Would you rather work for 12 to 14 hours out in the field? plowing and harvesting and, and carrying a 50-pound bag of seed on your shoulder, or would you rather carry a pitcher of water? I would rather do the water. So while Peter and John enter Jerusalem, and they would see thousands of people with different skin tones, from different classes, engaged in different kind of activities, one of them is not going to be like the other. Because he will have a pitcher of water. So men, the next time you go out into the world and you carry your Nalgene, you hold it high and know that you stand out. Now, what, what does Jesus instruct them to do when they find this man? Verse 13. Look at the last two words. What are they to do when they find him? Follow him. And again, we, we don't know. There's not enough in the text to tell us if this man is aware of this, if he's in on it, or if the, if the two men, if, the, if Peter and John, if they, need to, if they need to trail him all sneakily like, 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 like Jewish ninjas. That would make a great premise for a movie, wouldn't it? So they are to follow him, and they don't even know where he's going to go. They just follow him sneaking around a corner, keeping their distance, but not looking like they're trying to keep their distance, just, just walking casually. So wherever it is he leads them, they are, to, they are to find the owner of the house. So this guy is not even the real target. He is not the final destination. He is, he is probably just a water boy or a, or a servant. And they are to say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Now, who thinks that, that this is a tall order? Who thinks this is an awkward thing, uh, 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 an odd thing to do? Odd set of instructions to carry out. They would go into this bustling city. They would find this strange man. They would follow him wherever he goes and you know, we don't know how long that took. Was it, was it a, a, a five-minute walk, or did his path around the city look like Billy's uh, map that he would chart from Family Circus? You know, going all over the place with 50, 50 stops before he gets to the final destination. Whenever he does reach that final destination, the, the disciples are to go up on the door and knock and ask to see the head of the house, who, like the water boy, is a complete stranger to Peter and John. And to them, to him, they are to relay this message. The teacher says, where's my guest room so that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, we can safely assume two things with this. One, this man, this owner of the house, whoever he is, he knows the teacher is Jesus. And after uh, after the Son of Man... The teacher is the most common title in Mark's gospel for, for Jesus. Son of man is used 14 times. The teacher is used 12. And despite it being the second most used title, it is the most used title used by others when they are addressing Jesus. 
So he knows, he knows that the teacher is Jesus. That's one thing. The other thing we can safely assume is that he himself is a believer, that he is himself a disciple of the Lord. And why can we assume that? Why is that a safe bet? Because when the two disciples relay this out of place message to this unidentified man, he's not going to turn them away. He's not going to question them. He's not going to do what you and I would do, call the police and lock the door. He's not going to resist them. He's not even going to hesitate. What will he do? Jesus says he will do this. What will he do? Not what might he do. What will he do? He will show you a large upper room. You're going to ask for a little guest room. He's going to show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Which furnished means that this room that they're going to be shown, it is going to have tables. It is going to be decorated. It's going to have uh, covered couches for reclining. Uh, It is going to be, it's not going to be a hovel. This is going to be a decorated, nice room. It is going to be a room that is ready for a meal, ready for Jesus and the disciples. It'll be ready for the Passover meal. That is what this man is going to show Peter and John. Now, why would this unidentified man, this owner of the house, this owner of the house with the large upper room, why would he do this? Well, being a believer in Jesus, he has come to realize the sobering truth that ultimately nothing is truly his. Everything is truly the Lord's. And anything that does happen to come into his possession is really because God has appointed him a steward of that possession. And should the Lord appear out of the blue and tap him on the shoulder and say, where is my guest room? I have need of it. I have use of it. This man won't hesitate to give back to the Lord what was at first entrusted to his care. Do you see the application for us today? This man has successfully done what the rich young ruler wouldn't and couldn't do. And that's lay his riches before the Lord in an open hand. And to humbly and selflessly accept whatever the Lord does with it, whether it's to take it or to give it right back. Whatever the Lord decides to do with it is good enough for him. 1 Corinthians 4.12 tells us what is the most important thing that needs to be found in a steward. Paul says, it is required of stewards that they be found handsome and attractive. That they be found charismatic and graceful and funny. No. What, what do you think the most important trait that is to be found in a steward? If you, entrust, if you entrust something of yours to somebody, what quality do you want them to have? Faithfulness faithfulness it is required of stewards that one be found faithful and so beloved i ask you are you being faithful with what the lord has entrusted to you or are you considering it robbery what do i mean by robbery 
Well, Paul uses this word in Philippians 2 when he says that as, an illustri- as the ultimate illustration of, of selflessness and humility, Paul says that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't consider his deity, his rights and his prerogatives as deity, something that he had to clutch onto, something he had to, to grasp for fear of losing. That's what the word robbery means. So do you hold your, your possessions the things that God has made you a steward of, your body, your time, your money, your energy, your family, your house, your car, your schedule, your computer, your video games, your children, everything that is yours, are you holding it in an open hand before the Lord or are you considering it robbery because it's yours? What are you doing with it? Are you being... Will you be found faithful should the Lord tap you on the shoulder? So after they are shown the fulfillment of all these things and discover that Jesus has sovereignly provided for them a place where they can and will observe the Passover, they are given one more command to carry out. What's the last thing they're told to do? Last phrase of verse 15. What, is, what are they told to do? Prepare for us there. Do you, do you see side by side? Sovereign, divine sovereignty with human responsibility. The might and the foreknowledge and the wisdom and the counsel of God and the, and the ordaining of God in one hand and yet human responsibility, human assignment, human stewardship, side by side like two rails on a train track. They would find that the Lord had done some preparation. They would find that without their input, without their knowledge of it, the Lord Jesus Christ has prepared a room for them. Now they were to prepare the Passover meal, which would require them to go to the temple And however long it took, stand in line, wait in line, purchase a lamb, have it inspected, have it butchered by the priests. They would receive it back, and then they would carry it on a pomegranate spit. I read that this week, and I thought, I don't say that phrase enough, so I'm going to say it. Pomegranate spit. And they would take it back where it would be roasted for the evening meal. And all that's left now, now that Jesus has told them what is going to happen, all that's left is for them to either do it or not. They, they had a concern. They brought their concern to Jesus. He, get, he commanded them what to do in response to that concern. And now they have the choice, comply or not. Let's see what they do. Verse 16. As we see the compliance. Oh, I just let the cat out of the bag, didn't I? the compliance of the disciples. Verse 16, they, the disciples went out and came to the city and, what does it say? They found it just as he had, just as they were told, just as he had told them. Which means as odd, as out of place, as unprecedented, as unexpected, as, as silly and weird as the Lord's instructions were, 
They did what they were told. They carried it out. Step by step, they, they did it and they found everything just as he said. Every little detail, every little word of the Lord Jesus Christ came to pass sure as he said it would. They, Mark says, they went out. They didn't hesitate. They didn't stop and pause. They didn't, they didn't add anything to the Lord's words. They didn't get distracted or diverted. They didn't start something else. They didn't go to the left or to the right. They didn't think it was a fool's errand. And they didn't go and try to procure a place for themselves using their own means, their own resources, their own wit, their own money. Speaking of money, they didn't stop to ask why Judas wasn't given the task after all. What is, who was Judas? What did he have in his possession? The money box. Why? Judas is the one who, sh- who should be going. He's the treasurer. He's the one who should be go uh, procuring and purchasing and reserving a place. He's the one who should stand in that long line and buy the Passover lamb. Why isn't he doing it? Well, we're going to get to that in a second. But I want you to see there's a time and a place for questions. We saw that even even this morning in Sunday school. There is a time and a place to ask questions of God and of the scriptures and of teachers. But then there's a time and a place for prompt, undetoured, simple, faithful obedience. They went and did as they were told and they carried out their obedience to completion. What, what, is, what does verse 16 conclude with? And they prepared the Passover. Beloved, how good it would be if such simple words were used to describe you and me. Aaron found, if my epitaph were to say, Aaron found the things Jesus said to be true, and he, he did what was given for him to do. That would be good for me. If John, if it were to be said of of John Lafferty that John found the word of Christ to be faithful. And so John was faithful to Christ. That would be good for John, wouldn't it? If it could be said of Darmati or Daniel or Alyssa or Stephen or Leslie or any one of you that so-and-so found God's word true and they did what was expected of them from God. That would be good. Let's wrap this up. What, what is the takeaway? What is the, what is the application? What is the so what to this? I want you to see, and this is something that we have touched upon already. It is something that we will touch upon again, even in the very next passage. This is something that every gospel presents. Jesus is sovereign. Does that surprise anybody? Jesus is sovereign. He is always out ahead of every situation. Not just some, not just most, but every situation. He never has to catch up. He's never caught off guard He's never unprepared. He's never outmaneuvered or outsmarted or outwitted or or outlasted. He is always in control. 
It's always out of the parade of human history. And that goes the same for all the fine little details of my life and your life. Every single one of them. Matthew 5 says that not even a, not even a, a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing it. Without him being ahead of that event. This narrative then displays the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does it in two ways. One is going to be explicit. And one will be implicit. Well, what do I mean by that? One is going to be very plain, very clear, very obvious. And you can't miss it. The other one, not so clear, not so plain, not so obvious. It's, it's inferred and it's hinted and otherwise might escape your notice. So let's look at these. The explicit display of Jesus' sovereignty. I would remind you, what day is it? Passover day. It is the Passover. What were the disciples concerned about? They are required to celebrate this very important meal. They are required to do it with a lamb within a, within a lodging in Jerusalem. They have no place to hold the meal. And it is far too late in the game for them to go look for one on their own. And yet Jesus directs with pinpoint prophetical precision to a place that has been sovereignly reserved for them. That's one you cannot miss. That is a display of Jesus' sovereignty you cannot miss. Jesus, with pinpoint accuracy, with precision, he discloses what they will do, who they will run into, and who they will be led to, who they are to speak to, and what he will do in response. And absolutely, every little thing, every little detail happens exactly as Jesus says it will. True? That's the explicit one. But what about, what about the subtle way that this passage tells us and reminds us Jesus is sovereign? And this is indeed one of many passages in this, really the second half of Mark. And we can, we can approach answering that question by addressing another question. And this is the elephant in the room. And I alluded to it earlier. Why the secrecy? Why the clandestine behavior? Well, I think Mark answers that question for us. Just not in these verses. Look at verses 17 and 18. Look at the text that immediately follows this. You remember, remember we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago, why did, why did Mark include the, the, the event of, of Mary offering that expensive perfume and then right before Judas goes out and betrays him? You remember how when you looked at those one after the other, how that made sense? Yeah. Sharp eye. Look at verse... Why, why the clandestine behavior? Why doesn't he announce to the 12 where they're going to be? What does Mark tell us? What does Jesus say in verse 18? Notice, who is he with in verse 17? The 12. What does he say to the 12? One of you will betray me. Jesus is already out ahead 
of Judas's betrayal. He knows that Judas is going to betray him and how he's going to do it. And if the location of the lodging is known to Judas, the timetable for Jesus to die at the appointed time and in the appointed hour and in the appointed manner will be jeopardized. Jesus knows that full well. And it can't be until after this last meal is, is observed that he will allow himself to be caught and executed. And this is an important dinner. The new covenant is going to be given to them. All of the intimate and very important teachings found in John 13 through 17, the entire upper room discourse, that's tonight. The most, the most compacted and, and clear teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be given tonight. It's not until all of that is done that Jesus will allow himself to be captured. And he is so sovereign You must see this. He is so sovereign that he is orchestrating everything so that he will do what has been appointed for him to do. So no, to to answer the original question, which Sim did for us, no, Jesus, the historical Jesus, wasn't just a helpless human victim in the cogs of history. He was the sovereign, willing God-man victim. That is a grammatically horrible sentence, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. He was a willing victim who boldly and passionately became our Passover lamb. Do you, do you see the sovereignty of God smacking us in the face? In light of his sovereignty, what is the most appropriate response Commenting on 1 Peter 5, 6, which says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Mighty hand of God is synonymous with his sovereignty. R.C. Sproul says this verse is the microcosm of Christianity. Humble yourself under the sovereign, mighty hand of Christ. So that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That is a good sovereign hand to be under, isn't it? Let's let's close. Lord, this text rightly tells us and reminds us of your sovereign hand, your sovereign power, your sovereign knowledge. You are not just a helpless victim, but you are the preordained, predestined Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God known before the foundation of the world. Lord, let nobody here be ignorant of the fact that you, full in full knowledge of what was coming, in full knowledge, in full awareness of the horrible and gruesome and bloody and painful things that are about to befall you in the text, you nevertheless marched boldly into that death and you embraced it. You endured the cross, despising the shame so that you might be merciful and kind and gracious to sinners like us. 
Lord, help us to help us to leave this place more in awe and more in love with you because of what you have done for people like us. Amen.